If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use. And you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We have a really special guest sitting right here next to me. I'm really happy to say we have Cheryl Crow here today. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Brian? I'm okay. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. So we already talked on the phone for a recent issue of Rolling Stone about uh, your your great new album, uh, Be Myself. It it seems like it's one of those sort of... uh, it's a little bit of a return to roots, I guess. Yes. And, and, and to a certain extent, self-consciously so. Kind of, yeah. I, I didn't actually mean to go back and recreate what I've done or what I had done on the first, or maybe the second, third, fourth, maybe even fifth record, but the intent of listening to at least the second and third record was to kind of remind myself of w- what the emotional spirit of those records were so that I could... Um, try to kind of recreate that and I think we really did part part and parcel because I wound up making this record exactly like I made those those records where mm. I played bass and I had Jeffrey Trot who I've written with for um, off and on for years uh, he moved into Nashville and we started working together again and we had a drum programmer so the three of us just sat there and um, and I wrote on the mic and that was typically how I made those early records so the mm. sound and the feel it just it, it followed suit. What is it about bass for you? How did that become like a, a key instrument, a songwriting instrument? Yeah, I think because I'm a half-ass guitar player and I'm a half-ass <laughs> keyboard player and I'm really a half-ass musician, period. <laughs> but um, writing on the bass, I think I think more about the groove and the melody as opposed to when I play on instruments that I actually play better, like guitar and, key, and keys. When I play the guitar, I wound up thinking about the chords and what chord, where I'm going to go next. And sometimes I do the same things over and over. And it's just, it's mm. just a way of my thinking about the song and writing the song um, melody first, as opposed to um, working with chords and all. People can kind of spitball 
melodies when they're strumming chords on guitar. Like that's mm-hmm. a pretty common way. But bass is so rhythmically complicated, and there's I somehow always, by the way, I always veer into the technical on this show. But but I mean, you know, it is tricky to sing and play bass at the same time, at least for the the amateur. Uh, I am actually a trained monkey. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why it doesn't. Oh, thank you. Coffee has arrived. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that is. Um, I know that for a lot of people, playing bass and singing is really tricky. I think I've mastered the old rub your tummy, pat your head thing. Right, which it so literally well. is for people who haven't tried it. It, it, it. There's a certain rhythmic independence that's required. It, your, your brain yeah. has to be doing two things. It's a pretty impressive feat. Well, and I, I, you know, I got my degree in classical piano. I don't know if you right. know that. So when you play the piano, you have at least three things operating um, independently at a time. You have your right hand melody, your left hand generally is chords, and your foot is working the the damper pedal. So... I think my brain has been trained, and although I am a case study in not being so great at math, and usually <laughs> when people can do that in Excel, they're pretty good at math, but not me. So right before this record, you had a, a an adventure in the world of country. I did, yes. Which I had an adventure in the world of country, the format. Yes. Not in country music. Mm. To distinguish between the two. That's interesting. I mean, you, you made... A quite nice country record that that is in the country format. You mean as opposed to explain that distinction in your mind? Well, um, I I like to think that I have um, been influenced by country music, um, but I think it only took me a minute to realize that the country music I was influenced by doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. Um, you know, bands like the Flying Burrito Brothers and uh, Graham Parsons, of course, and Emmy Lou, and I mean, even older artists like the Carter family for that matter. But, um, and certainly the Rolling Stones doing Let It, Let it Bleed and Exile, you know, that brand of country, that sort of left of center kind of country. Um, so, you know, I, I wound up making a record that was probably a little slicker than what I went, meant to make, but the overall mm. experience of it was great. You know, I, one of one of my desires in making that record was to write with great songwriters and to get that experience. And um, and I love most of the songwriting on the record, um, but I think the format was what was really problematic for me because it required so much of my personal life or so much of my personal time to be invested in promoting. Uh, the record in hopes of it getting played between three and four in the morning. You know what I mean? So <laughs> Yeah. Country asks so much of an artist coming in from another genre. Here you are having a certain quite deserved status in your own world. And I've heard this from other people. They want you to act almost like a beginner in some ways and, and mm-hmm. be out there playing these shows and doing the, and it's, it's very odd. I well, think. it was definitely counterintuitive for me. And I went into it saying, okay, well, if I'm going to, if I'm going to move over into the country format, I'm going to treat myself like a beginner and I'm going to do all the things that, you know, just out of fairness that you would do if you were a, a new artist. But what I came to realize is that you really do have an advantage if you're a new artist as opposed to coming from a, a, another genre. And even though I had so many people saying, I mean, people I really respect, you know, huge artists saying you should make a country record. You have no idea how many girls you've influenced that still come in and say, I want to make a song like if it makes you happy or I want to write a song like strong enough, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my gosh. 
I'm sorry. I'm flirting with Dan Rather. That is, in fact, Dan Rather looking at us through glass. Very <laughs> doesn't happen every day. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, that was incredible. Where was I? Uh, okay. Right. Um, anyway, uh, everyone was telling you make a country record, yeah, which, which made sense. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, that didn't really mean. Uh, it, I think, from the standpoint of you know, young women saying I want to write strong enough to be my man, or and people saying, well, you've influenced a whole, you know. Um, a whole bunch of women in this format it's still you can't go back and rewrite those songs and then say hey I'm at country music and expect to be played so right it's, and that's kind of what the experience was John Mellencamp's new record leans a little bit country and I was talking to him about mm-hmm. it and I think in his case it's more the genre than the format you know um, yeah. but he I asked him about what how he saw his relationship to modern country and he's like no no hold on how, how do I see their relationship to me because he hears so much of his own 80s music reflected back at him in, oh, in country which I think is probably true for, for some of your 90s music so then it's such a weird thing to be like they're already influenced by me and then trying to a little bit yeah. trying to fit into something that was shaped in part by you it's a bizarre exercise which, yeah. which resulted in some interesting songs I think some good I songs I think that um, I think that what the result of having had that experience was was this record you know this record was hey let's go back and figure out what making music is really like again mm-hmm. and I think back on making this record and how quick it was you know we made it in like three or four weeks and the experience of it, and I do feel like it, it transcend it transcended any of the um, format experiences that I've had. It really took me back to just making a record um, without any outside pressure. I mean, literally, I drop my kids off at school, we go down and work until four thirty in the afternoon, and that was it. And it was just liberating to be able to say, "Okay, I'm writing music for grown-ups." I'm not competing for singles. I mean, who's going to play me at my age at pop radio? Mm. And there was something really liberating about that. And um, and knowing that I wasn't going to have to schlep all over God's creation to play free gigs <laughs> to hopefully get played between three and four in the morning. So, <laughs> Was there a moment when you realized, like, I am done with this country thing and then my next thing is going to be me? Was, was there kind of a... a, a yeah, I mean, I, there. You know, at one point, I I said to my manager, "I've spent I've spent far too many nights away from my kids to justify this," and that was it. We were done. Mm. When you talk about recapturing some of the spirit of of your first albums, I mean, part of the thing was you were always outside of trends to an extent. The closest thing that I would say you were part of a, that was a larger sort of trend was like a Lilith Fair, just like women female artists of the 90s but other than that I mean you you weren't you know you, you weren't grunge you know you weren't dance pop you were kind of in your own lane that was a mm. little bit more of a classicist approach yeah. I would say which was actually posed a, a, a challenge first of all in getting signed right I mean yeah, that was a, a big absolutely problem. yeah because when I was trying to get signed which was kind of on the heels of um um, or on the backside of being on the road with Michael Jackson, people expected me to to kind of just jump right into the pop world, and that wasn't really what I wanted to do. Nor was it even natural to me. And what was it? Radio was like it was like Madonna and Paula Abdul and like big video kind of vixens and um, you know super pop. And I played for everybody, and 
I feel like I played for everybody in the state of California, but I probably didn't. But I got turned down by everybody I played for. You know, I had a lot of people saying, oh, we'll write you a check to do some demos. And um, but no. And the thing that I kept hearing is we don't know what to do with your kind of music. We don't know what to do with Blue Eyed Soul or, you know, country rock or whatever. So, yeah, it took a, it took a long time. I didn't get my first record till t- deal till I was 28. So, um, but, you know, I lived a full life before that. I had lots of jobs. You know, I'd... I'd taught school I'd been on the road with several different artists and so wasn't like I was sitting around and then I waited tables of course right which is what we do when we want to make it we talked about the abandoned first record of course which you mm-hmm. just which which you, you end up talking about with for like $150 yeah and, and, and as I said it is on YouTube now you knew halfway through th- that this thing was too slick that that it was yeah that, was I it, knew was it actually similar? after the second week um, that what we were making was going to be just lost in the record bins of posterity. <laughs> was it, was it going all, to disappear quickly? Was it all similar? I, it was interesting to me they use the word slick to talk about the your, your, the country album you just made. Was there ever a, was there any just super like uber produced? Yeah, you know, and mixed so that every single thing was shiny and glossy. Uh, you know, and you can tell from every record I've made that shiny and glossy is not my first love. So one of the things that's interesting uh, in, in the story of your career is there, there was like a year between shelving that record yes. and Tuesday Night Music Club. So what was that year like? It was painful. I mean, I waited tables. I heard from several people in town I was going to be dropped. I kept making demos. Um, I went on the road with a band called Toy Matinee. Uh-huh. I was their keyboard player. Um, it was hard. It was hard. But I didn't. I didn't... You know, as long as I had a deal, I didn't think I was doomed. I just didn't know how to get the ball rolling again until I got invited to um, down to Bill Betrell's studio and met him. And then he, after him hearing me, he really just said, you know, let's let's investigate this without ever saying I want to produce you. Let's just let's just do some stuff and see what we come out with. How ambitious were you as a young person? Like, you know, there's the Madonna thing, like famous Dick Clark, like I want to conquer the world. You know, um, were, did you want to conquer the world or what did, or, or how would you, how did you define no, your ambition? I didn't want that. <laughs> I wanted to be great. I wanted to make music that really mattered. And uh-huh. that in and of itself can also be a curse because you set yourself up for monumental failure because you're never going to feel like what you've done is good enough. Mm. You know, if you're always... If you're always um, basically constituting your self-worth on whether you feel like some something made a dent, um, there's no objectivity there. And so for me as a kid, I just equated everything with if I do everything great, then people will love me. <laughs> and if I make everybody happy, then their smiles will reflect that they love me. I mean, you know, it's that kind of thing. Like a little kid doing so, like a song and dance, you so, know. So just a, a pure psychological sickness you inflicted Yeah, it was like yourself. a total yeah. mythology <laughs> yeah. that I adopted and lived by. You're, so You said early on, your parents both played music and, and your yeah. dad is a, a horn player. I forgot what... He was a horn player he, and still plays a horn and plays guitar. And I think you said he, to a certain extent, he had abandoned music to become a lawyer. That, yes. That, and and yeah. there was a certain frustration there. Is that accurate? Well, when he went to college, he told his parents that he wanted to major in music and you can be guaranteed that people coming out of the depression um, first person in the family ever to go to college announcing they want to study music I'm sure they were just like oh no what did we do wrong you know and so he did take 
he did study music for a year, in which point he never touched a piano. He came out playing classical. I mean, he's very gifted. But I think there was a moment of reckoning where he was like, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. So he wound up getting his degree in business and then going and, uh, or getting his law degree. And you talk about an Atticus Finch. I mean, this this man, trial lawyer, very altruistic, believed in the justice, still does, believes in the justice system and, you know, old school lawyer, but always loved music and always played as long as, you know, when I was growing up, they always played. I'm curious whether it drove you toward the career you had, the fact that, that neither of your parents actually made a career in, in music and that the, was there a degree of frustration in them over that? I don't know if I sensed any frustration. Um, I definitely sensed their joy. They played in a little, it wasn't a pickup band, they played in a kind of a swing band and they would go out and play on weekends every so often and they'd come back just kind of like we do where you're all amped up you come Mm. back and drink and put on music on the Magnavox we had a big old stereo and they would dance in the living room and play along and those are really good memories for me and that's I grew up you know sleeping on the stairs next to the wall where they were uh, because I wanted to be a part of it and I think and I grew up watching people on TV performing I was always really drawn to it and started going to concerts when I was 13. I just think everything in my life was pointing me towards that vortex. Who was the key artist you discovered as sort of a teenager? Yeah, uh, Fleetwood Mac and also uh, also the Beatles. Mm. You know, they were already done by the time I was of the age that I could really follow a band or whatever they'd quit making records and my sister played a lot of that stuff she played James Taylor Joni Mitchell Tapestry and I started learning all that stuff on the piano but it was it was really the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac that I started getting really interested in like I want to I want to be in a band I want to be a part of something you know something that moves as a unit which raises an interesting question like what is the path is there a path where you would have ended up in a band or was it become pretty clear that you were meant to be a solo artist well every band I was in I was always the side musician and I never wanted to be the front person I just wanted to be in a band and Hmm. so I played I was in a cover band in college and we played at the I was I went to University of Missouri and there was a place called Bullwinkles and we played there almost every weekend and we played covers and I was the keyboard player and then I think my junior year the girl that was the front singer who was fabulous um quit and they're like, well, you have to do it. And I'd never mm. fronted a band. Um, I went on to be, you know, through the years, keyboard players in other people's bands. And um, so it wasn't really until I went out to L.A. and took my commercial reel that I started getting called to do some session work. And then um, I wound up being a backup singer on the Jackson tour and Don Henley's tour. And um seeing on people's records and just start trying to get my own thing going. Tell me about that. If you remember that first gig fronting the cover band, like what did that feel like? Oh, I totally remember. I was, I was so nervous. I mean, it it just, I felt like a total idiot. Yeah. Cause you know, they're there. You look at the great front guys throughout history. They make it look so easy. They make it look natural. You know, obviously Mick Jagger, um, Robert Plant, you know, clearly Stevie people like that look like they belong up there and they're moving like they belong like that's it's just all part of the whole 
package. But the first time you step out and you do it on your own, you feel like you are just doing, you look like a complete and total dork, you know? <laughs> and I'm sure I did. Um, it just takes a while to figure out who you are on stage, you know? And I had a lot of time before my first record really broke to figure out who that person was. You know, we started out uh, on the Tuesday Night Music Club record playing for a handful of people and then it would grow and grow by word of mouth and there was no social media. So it, it, it really grew by people's loyalty to the love of the record. And, um, and I had a lot of time before cameras ever hit me to actually really, um, you know, hone what I was doing. It's funny if you listen to that record, you can tell it's you know someone who's twenty eight and not twenty, someone who'd done a lot of work and was very sophisticated. First of all, even in your approach to the vocals, you were mm-hmm. doing a lot of different approaches to the vocals. You were kind of you know maybe playing characters and and just like you you really had honed. You'd worked very hard to get to a, a certain point of skill that was beyond like sort of like a pop ingenue, ingenue like just making their first record. You know, I think there's just an unbelievable advantage to and it doesn't happen like this anymore but to having had a life before making it yeah I think so many kids now are they turn on the Disney Channel and all those kids on there you when you're 10 or 12 you watch those kids and you think I can do that (laughs) and they all sing like they you know like they they sing like Mariah Carey they can do all the crazy vocal machinations and um and they're groomed for that and um you know, I just feel like my having had a life before becoming a really public figure was such to my advantage. I would not have been able to handle the pressure of having to be living my life completely in front of cameras, which is what kids do now. It's just, I couldn't do it. There's no way. What did you learn from, I mean, you, you had obviously done the, the Michael tour. I guess you did like a Clapton tour, Henley. I didn't do Clapton, uh, but I uh, did uh, Don Henley. Right. And those were the two main tours. I'm trying to think if I did anybody. Uh, yeah, that was it. Did that play into your craft at all at that point? Had you Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, getting to go from, first of all, my first time out touring, I had to get a passport. I mean, I had never even left the country. So, right. And we go straight from rehearsals to Tokyo. And um, But the big learning curve for me was watching him um, in his... In his expertise of what he was what he he was doing, but also just working looking at how a band has worked, how you lead a band, how you like with a music director um you know rehearsing a band and then going to the Don Henley tour, which was very family oriented like he traveled on the guy bus, we were on the girl bus, we all ate <laughs> meals together, we did the stairmaster together, you know we spent all of our time together, and he treated all of us like we were his band you know there was no separation with Michael it was a completely different thing he was very we only saw him at gigs um and so there were things that I kind of picked up from both before I ever went on my own tour and that was really really helpful were you pretty sure that success was going to find you or what did it feel like a complete void of confusion and doubt at, at that point in your life you know, it's hard for me really to remember. I do remember hearing from people in town that I was um, probably going to be dropped from my deal and being really bummed out about it. You know, it's kind of like pregnancy, I think, <laughs> even though I've never had a baby. Um, but I, I always hear about people saying, you know, the the delivery is just so painful and it's you know it's you say you're never going to do it again and then <laughs> you do it again it, yeah. as if you don't remember that 
that period at all. You know, it's it's you've forgotten it and you've painted it as a rosy picture or whatever. I kind of feel that way about that period. Like I know it was really hard and I know there was a lot of should I just move home? You know, I was really having to watch every dime. I was waiting tables. I had been, you know, traveling around the world with the most famous singer in the world and then there I am, you know, back waiting tables. I felt like a complete and total failure. But I think the one saving grace for me was that I never stopped writing. I never stopped writing songs. In fact, it was Don Henley that said to me, um, I had a song getting that was being cut by Phil Collins and a song being cut by Eric Clapton. I, I had one cut by Celine Dion. And he's like, why are you writing for other people? Save your songs. Stop giving these for away. Your, yeah. Quit giving these yeah. away. Yeah. And I, I think that was what kept me going. What were the lingering effects if any of all that kind of backbiting after Tuesday Night Music Club well a few things it, it, uh, it forever changed the way I handle the press aspect of my career like I never read anything because even if there's like a stellar piece on me I can find something in there that will you know <laughs> just be like a little truth that I don't want to face but also um I don't go back and watch things. It's hard, you know, um, it's hard getting older. Mm. You know, I, I feel I'm the same age as I, that I always was. And I feel as, um, as energetic and as high on life as I ever was. But then you tend to pick yourself apart when you see yourself performing. Like, oh my God, why did I do that? Why did I wear that? Or you look so old. You know, all that stuff. You're so self-critical, or at least I am. So I just enjoy it more if I kind of live with my head in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and you know, I have little kids too. So my energy is really towards them. And what I do with work and stuff is something that brings me a ton of joy. And I don't want anything to um, you know take away from that obviously your second album was driven by a sort of proving yourself sort of thing mm-hmm. like because you whenever someone faces that sort of like oh how much did she do it's like well exactly. fuck you like here's what here's yeah. what I'm doing but how, how many albums did you get out of that sort of energy or was it sort of once you, once you had great success with your second album was it was it kind well, of well <laughs> my second record was definitely there was a lot of you know F you to a lot of people on that record and um and I think energetically that record is, you know, real scrappy and and I love it because of that. And then the third record for me really felt like the sophomore record. Mm. I think because there was such a mission on the second record and then the third record, I'd been through a really painful breakup and I brought all that to the table. Um, I brought that and I brought, you know, some some more somber moments and some fear to that record and but it still had the same formula as the first record where I was on bass and uh, Jeff was on uh, guitar and we had a drummer and so sonically and just even um, the way it was recorded was exactly like the first the second record and the one that we just did and so that lent itself to being you know really I think having a lot of continuity to the first record for this new album what was kind of the first step what was the what was the kind of the first step was the first step was Jeff Trott moving about three miles from my house (laughs) and that was a good step he had come in a few times and we would write when he would come in and we'd feel this pressure we've got to write something great because you're getting ready to leave but when he moved there he came over and we just 
you know, he's a dear friend. I mean, I, I say this all the time, but I, he's one of the best people that I know. I mean, mm. I, I love him so much. He's just such a, a good man. Love his family. Um, but I mean, it's, and I do feel this way, honestly. It's an honor for me to get to, to work with him because of who he is. What he brings um, to everything is is who he is and I love that about him but, and, and um, for people who don't know this is someone you'd, you'd Jeff written Jeff Trot. Yeah, yeah, yeah we wrote um, If It Makes You Happy Every Day's a Winding Road My Favorite Mistake we did the whole second record together the whole third record together we wrote Suck Up the Sun um, a couple of songs on that record the Come On Come On record um, and then we had we wrote a few things through the years but um, but this is the first time since then we got together to make a record. How does a collaboration like that end? Like, what was the kind of... Does it just peter out or, you know? No, actually, um, it wasn't even a, a conscious decision. We actually did... We've written on every record. But, like, the Detours record, I went back to working with Bill, who was my first producer. So he and I wrote quite a lot, even though Jeff and I have some songs on that one, too. Um, the, the Wildflower record... Um, I was in a relationship and living in Austin and uh, and actually Jeff flew in and we did some writing down there but you know it just circumstantially it was more about the distance as opposed to um, anything else. How does your collaboration with Jeff work? Well it's a funny formula um, but I sit in front of a mic with a bass and he sits in front of a mic with a guitar and we have either a drum programmer or a drummer and, you know, generally we start cooking up a groove and some chords and then I start singing. And on this record, fortunately, um, a lot of the lyrics came out in large chunks mm. um, after having had conversations about what was going on around us. And I think there was just so much in the ether um, that to be written about that it made it easier and also I think I had ha I'd had I'd been storing up a lot of stuff I hadn't been writing for a long time and I just had a lot of things to to say so do you go can you go a year two years without writing a song um not generally <laughs> yeah not generally although I don't do I don't do it as much as I used to I enjoy it more now if I if I am able to sit down um and have a have a reason to be doing it. Let's hear. I, I, I was struck by a bunch of songs in this album, but uh, "Love Will Save the Day," which is uh, a really nice atmospheric song. In a Again, the atmosphere of that of that song, the vibe. How did that come together? I actually played that for Jeff. I had a I had made a little demo of me playing the piano and and singing a melody over it, but I had not I hadn't finished it. And he said I love that and it happened to be at a time when both of us were well, I was experiencing a real heaviness cuz a friend of ours um this this kid in town who's 14 hung himself and I think mm. partially because of the pressures of just being his age but and bullying and um, and Jeff and I spent quite a lot of time talking about that because he is a 14 year old and I have two kids and we we're just talking about the pressures and how different it must be growing up now than when we were kids um, you know there's already a lot of pressure 
when you're going through hormonal changes and you're getting bigger and you're figuring out who you are in the world. But now with the pressures to go to college and not just a college, but a great college and to be um, popular and, you know, and the texting thing and all that stuff, it just must be so much harder. So anyway, we spent a lot of time talking about that. And then I played him this, this piece of music. It was on my phone and he's like, I love that we have to finish that and so we did and it was Jeff actually that came up with the line um, uh, we get lost along the way and that that was what saved it because I was at a kind of a standstill with it not being sure how to get into the chorus is it how like sort of the lyrical aspect of collaboration often works for you is that you have the bulk of it and then some maybe there's like a missing line and that kind of comes in yeah and actually it's funny because Jeff always tell I I call Jeff my musical husband or my music (laughs) chiropractor like he's really good if I'm stuck at coming in and just throwing something out like well what if blah 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 Um, right and it might not be even the line that he says but it might just make me go oh but wait you know the springboard and that's really been what's great about our collaboration is that um i probably do the majority of the lyric writing but when i'm stuck he is able to step in and you know pick up the ball let's hear the title track for a second How did that song come together? Well, I mean, there are some obvious themes that run throughout this record, and one of them is uh, the ever-presence of gadgets, you know, of our cell phones. And, like, I have a song called Roller Skate that says, you know, put your phone away, let's roller skate. You know, just... There's a lot of commentary about that. There's a song called Alone uh, Alone in the Dark, which is about you know, being okay, being dark, like going dark, as in not contactable through a gadget. Um, and Be Myself is probably the, it addresses the absurdity of it all with um, the likes and the dislikes and the followers and all that. And the chorus is actually, um, if I can't be myself, I might as well be my, if I can't be someone else, I might as well be myself as mm. if that's like a consolation prize. But, you know, it just points out the absurdity of, like, I took an Uber to a juice bar to see a new indie band play. They got 99 followers in only one day. And that, actually, that whole line just came out in in completion. And that happens so rarely for me. But it was really a little gift to have something actually, like, write itself. But it just, yeah, it's just, it's all, it's just, it's sort of a comment on how we live now. Yeah. Do you think, do you think rock is dead? Well, I don't, but it depends on how you define rock. Like rock to me probably became rap a few years back. You know, during the grunge period, I think that kind of killed rock and roll in some ways. Um, You mean hip hop killed or or grunge? Well, I think grunge did. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about that earlier about how grunge stars didn't want to look like rock and roll stars. They wanted to look like roadies. And and then, uh, you know, rap really became the place where social commentary was being written about like it really covered what was happening in the neighborhoods like rock and roll used to do you yeah. know um and there hasn't been anything that's really been socially conscious like rap since um you know rock and roll was alive and well 
did you feel like zero kinship then with with alt rock in the in the nineties? Like did did none of it? I did. I have to be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, I've always gravitated to music that had a little more soul and grunge music. Although you know, I think Nirvana was amazing and. I love Eddie Vedder. I mean, it's not that it's not great. It just wasn't my thing. You know, it seemed extremely, and I I say this um, f- from the context of music, but it seemed very white to me. Yeah, you know, very kind of almost seventies rock. Right. But the, well, it was, it was you know there certainly were metal influences, punk influences that, that yeah. were that were far from. I, I think. Yeah. I mean, Pearl Jam, for instance, it definitely became like a a more soulful kind of thing as as time went on. But but sure, in that in that moment, right, it was all. Yeah, I mean, they're like the stepchild of the Who to me. Yeah. Um, which hey, the Who's great, but you know, my thing was more Marvin Gaye and the Rolling Stones and. So as you were saying, you made this record during school hours, uh, which is yes. pretty cool, which is pretty cool. I mean, in a way, that's more rock and roll and more badass than as we said. Let like me just going, tell you what, yeah. I rock my minivan. <laughs> it's very different from you know, like I don't know, Tuesday Night Music Club, like drinking and like just like living this whole bohemian thing and just yeah. being total freedom. Yeah, um, it's sort of like a job. I'm going to. As I'm you actually going like, to show up to work today. Yeah, mm-hmm. and your your inspiration just has to. It has to come. You you, you can't sit the around waiting for it. The inspiration is relegated to working hours. Yeah, you know, I've had so many people through the last twenty five or thirty years say, "How? T- tell me how the writing process works. Tell me how do you find inspiration?" And used to, I would think that inspiration uh, did not ever go without gnashing of teeth and hair pulling and fretting and drinking and staying up with friends and you know all that stuff. And <laughs> I find now that as I get older, that I'm so much more open and fearless about saying something than I was back then to the point where I actually really looked forward to going in and seeing what I would come out with and without the without the nervousness of what if we don't get anything done today and I will have wasted six hours. Right. There was none of that. And, you know, I used to really feel that way. Like, I don't want to go in and spend any time... I don't want to go in and waste time. But now I feel like um, I can call it up by virtue of the fact that, well, one thing I think is it is the most incredibly fruitful time to be an artist. Now. Now. Why? Because there's so many things that we are all experiencing that no one is writing about. You mean you know, like politically or everything? Yeah. I mean, we we are we are all connected by a cell phone that's supposed to keep us connected, and yet it disconnects us. We are living um, with a full on, fully realized mistrust or distrust in our government. We are living in the age of, um, you know, kids moving back home and living with their parents. We're. Mm we're living in a time where we can't have a conversation with someone we disagree with without taking to our, our anonymous comment section and, you know, railing. And, you know, there's just our, the loss of our identity, I think. There's just so much stuff to write about, I feel. Yeah. There's, you were saying that you didn't have to wor- worry about pop radio because you felt like they weren't going to play you because you know they are totally ageist and it's it's, it's aimed yeah. at like and it seems like the the window is getting younger every year possibly it yeah. seems like like you know even Lady Gaga might have aged out of the format you know it's just like yeah. nuts she's adult so, contemporary right now. right I mean maybe we'll see she might make it back yeah. but but I mean. It, 
on some sure it's liberating is it also because I, I know talking to Madonna she finds it deeply annoying because she's it's, it's a little different she's someone who's trying to make current pop and trying to get on the thing and mm-hmm. she feels like no matter what she does it's just like a, a roadblock but so is there to you any frustration about that well you know um it's a easy it's a, it's it would be easy to become really super bitter about it mm. especially when you're trying to make music that matters and you feel like that what you have to say is as important as uh, so, you know I want to do bad things to you or you know <laughs> stuff like that that I have to censor my kids not to listen to <laughs> but I look at it in a couple of different ways I, I know that it could be construed as ageist and I guess it is but the bottom line is I'm not sure that it is so much about age as it is about the dollar and everything and that's another thing that nobody seems to be addressing everything is about the dollar mm. I mean our government is about the dollar uh you know the every song that gets played is about the sponsors and about the listeners well we don't want to play that because we don't we don't want to lose part of our demographic right because we lose part of our demographic we lose this sponsor that's that's only advertising sketchers to the 13 year olds (laughs) i mean it's just it is what it is and i i hate it that it it's it feels ageist and we need to all go and get our faces redone so we look young but the reality of it is music is is an art form but it's also high commerce and it's why we have some really schlocky stuff that we hear six times in an hour um but it's also why we have Sirius XM. I mean, yeah. in response to that, there are other places to go and find music that you want to hear. And um, and there, there are lots of places to find that stuff. You just have to be okay with not getting played on pop radio. And that's where I'm at. It's weird because even in the 90s, people were like, oh, the music industry is so commercialized now. It's not like in the 60s and 70s. But actually looking back, it seems like a true cornucopia of like allowing art to flower and development deals and so much more generous with time and and money in a way. And now it's just all just a lot of doors have closed, I guess. I think what I would say to any artist who's lived at pop radio um, to just find a way to be okay to have your music played a million times other places besides pop you know what I mean because like I I'm not interested in making music for 17 year olds now if they like my music that'd be fantastic and if what I'm saying resonates with them that is fantastic I would never rule out any any age group but I like being able to write songs that can also have meaning for the 40 year olds you know that's music for I call it music for grown ups but you know there's nothing wrong with that I am my age yeah what is the story behind Mississippi showing up on on, on your yes. album before before Dylan ever recorded it how, yeah. did it, how did it how did it get to you well I'm you know I've had some crazy mystical experiences in in my career and one of them was I was working at uh this my studio here in the meat packing district when it was a meat packing district right and um we were we were making the globe sessions um it had just been advertised in USA Today that my record was getting ready to come out. It was called River Wide. And I just had this awful feeling, like a depressing feeling that the record just didn't feel like it was, com- it wasn't finished. It didn't feel like it was complete. And it was my birthday and I got a call from Bob Dylan. Huh. And uh, just, I mean, random. Yeah. And Who you knew how well? Or I not? knew him pretty well through the years because I'd, I'd opened up for him quite a right. lot. 
And I had called him at one point because <laughs> I was... Which, by the way, do, it doesn't always mean that the opener... So I've talked to openers uh, who oh, never meet him. We but were yes. just <laughs> talking about that earlier. The only reason I actually got to meet him at, when I opened up for him at Roseland was that the power went off. Right. And the next night, he had I guess he'd been watching me from the side of the stage. He, he called me into his dressing room and sat down and said, I, you know, I admired you for keeping playing and um while people were yelling take your top off um (laughs) but yeah he called and said i i I have a couple of songs i want to send your way and it was just like manna from heaven we wound up recording mississippi and it totally changed the scope of that record i went up writing two more songs that went on the record and um so you know he came to my rescue without ever even knowing why that's that's Isn't that pretty crazy. Incredible. What was the other song? Do you know? Well, um, he we recorded Mississippi, and then let me think. What else did we do? Um, that he sent you. He sent you some other. Yeah. No, he sent me two songs, and I decided we'd do Mississippi. And but, you don't get to keep the songs. Oh, okay, so, so you I can't don't remember, remember what the other one. Yeah. Other, maybe it's no one's ever heard it. Thanks a lot, Cheryl. You know, killed the Bob I, Dylan song. I tell a good story. <laughs> well, he actually went on to record Mississippi know, on another record. So, yeah, so, so hopefully I, the other one he came probably out. recorded. Okay. Yeah, he probably did. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we've been very fortunate to have Cheryl Crow in with us today, talking about her her great record uh, that that is coming out just now. It'd be myself and a bunch of other. things things and thanks so much for being here thanks for having me brian absolutely and so this has been rolling stone music now we'll be back next week at 1 p.m on volume in the meantime download us as a podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next week have a great one Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord, we get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.